All right. Good morning, y'all. Happy Easter in November. That is the passage we're looking at today. After 72 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, spending 72 weeks meditating on the Gospel of Matthew, we finally land in the last chapter of this amazing book, of this amazing um, uh, chapter where we talk about the reality and objectivity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he expects of us because of that resurrection. So one of the, it is in this section where we find one of the most uh, famous passages, at least in Christian circles, when we, talk, uh, when we talk about the Bible, and it's the passage known as the Great Commission that I'm sure that everyone in this room has heard about, or at least, at least if you have witnessed um, baptisms, for sure you have heard that. This is, uh, this is the verse that says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. But what, what I want to do today is, looking at this chapter 28, I, I want to answer two questions, actually. I want to answer the question of, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because if we have been spending 72 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, hopefully by now we got an idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the second question that I want to answer is, how is it that we become, or why is it that we should become disciple makers? So first is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And the second one is, how do we become, um, or should become, disciple makers? And to do that, we're going to see... A couple of things in this text. We're going to see there three incentives, two requirements, and one fact that makes that happen. We're going to see three re incentives that tell us what a disciple is supposed to embrace that at the same time would uh, make us in, into uh, disciple makers. Two requirements that we got to keep in mind and one fact that changes everything. So to do this, I'm going to need you to do me a favor. I need you to look at the person next to you and ask the question, are you a disciple and a disciple maker? Go ahead, go ahead. All right, let's come back over here. Point number one, let's talk about the three incentives that makes a person a disciple and at the same time a disciple maker. And the way I'm going to handle the text today, so, so you know what's coming, is I'm going to go from the bottom up. I'm going to go from the bottom up, starting with the last sentence of this chapter. Starting in verse 20, Jesus says, I'm surely I'm with you always to the very end of age. That phrase, the very end of age, in the Gospel of Matthew, actually the word age in the Gospel of Matthew, for the most part, is talking about the age that Jesus came to bring and that continues until Jesus returns and will continue after Jesus returns. So, in other words, the word age, or the end of age, is talking about everything that has happened since Jesus came, came back, and what will happen when Jesus returns, and after. So, it's not just talking about our time here on earth. It's actually more talking about the things here on earth, but focusing on the things that are yet to come. And the picture that the Bible shows us about the things that are to come, is about this time and a place in which everything is restored. A time and a place in which hurt ceases to exist. A time and a place that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new 
error. And what I want you to see is that that image is the first incentive because he tells us that a disciple of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, a quick definition of what it means to be a disciple, is someone that not only believes in Jesus but learns about Jesus and wants to be modified by Jesus. That's a disciple. It's someone that believes in Jesus, learns about Jesus, and wants to be modified by Jesus. And what he says right here is that for believers, for a disciple, is someone that is looking at what is yet to come. To a place into a time in which all of our longings will be satisfied, our thirst for justice, love, peace, and harmony without interruptions will become a reality. That is the age to come. And if that is true, and it is, then at a personal level, that should change our perspective about anything and everything. It changes our perspective about suffering, for example. Because what is yet to come is a reality, then all of our suffering here has a deadline. It's only for a fragment of time. Even if it feels eternal, it's only for a fragment of time. And if that is true, what is yet to come is much better than what we have here. Then that makes us one, actually, that makes us want to desire that more. And it gives us a different perspective on how we deal even with the good things here. See, not only tells us that suffering has a deadline, that actually the only thing that suffering could do is, at least for me, is to want me to have heaven more, but at the same time, it changes the perspective of how we live here and the things that we embrace here. Because if what is coming is true, and it is, then there's nothing that will truly, fully satisfy our desires and longings here. Because you and I were made for heaven. There is nothing, church, nothing at all that will fully, truly satisfy the longings of our heart here. No education is going to be able to do that. No degree is going to be able to do that. No job is going to be able to do that. No promotion is going to be able to do that. No relationship here is going to be able to do that. No vacation, no experience will be ever, 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 ever enough for your heart because you were created for heaven. You were created to desire something much more than what we have here. This is part of the reason why as Christians we can enjoy what we have here. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the things that you have, but please don't turn them into idols. Because none of that stuff could ever fully satisfy and the only way we learn how to deal, deal with that is when we look at what is yet to come as something that is much, 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 much better, much more beautiful, much more perfect than anything else. See, a disciple knows how to live here, but thinking of that. See, a disciple knows how to live here, but desiring the, the very end of the age much more than anything else. Actually, let me make the argument that part of the reason why you struggle here and I struggle here is because we forget that we were made for heaven. Let me make the argument that part of the reason why we cling to things here like crazy is because we forget that we were made for heaven. Now, that's an incentive for us as disciples. How is that an incentive for us to become disciple makers? And the answer is so simple. Why wouldn't you want other people to believe that and live in light of that? That's the first incentive. 
Second incentive, for the second incentive, we have to answer a question. What guarantees that Jesus' disciples would actually make it into the new heavens and the new earth? What assurance do we have that we as believers are going to make it into the new heaven and the new age, and the new earth, the, the age to come? See, this is where the second incentive comes, because there's a sentence right before the very end of age. Going back to verse 20, Jesus says, And surely I am with you always until the, very, until the very end of age. See, the disciple knows that that there is the, that the only guarantee is that Jesus is holding on to us until he takes us home. See, a disciple is someone that understands that the one that is promising the future is the one that is holding on to you until you make it home. Actually, I'm going to make another argument. I think that this is one of the reasons why Christianity is different to every other philosophical religion in the world or system of beliefs in the world. Because every single philosophical view or religion in the world promises something about the future. But it leaves it up to you. Christianity is the only one in which God not only promises a better future, but he comes to take you home. This is not a picture of a God that says, look at what I have for you. Now find your way. This is not a picture of a God that says, look at what I have for you. I'll do my part, but you got to do yours. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible says that the God of the Bible is the one that promised a better future, but that in Jesus comes not only to die, but to take us home. It's almost like if Jesus is saying to the disciples, relax. Cool down a little bit. I got this. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to stick with you even when you don't want to stick with me. I will take you home. You know what's interesting about that phrase? And surely I am with you until the, end of, until the very end of age? Is that it sounds like covenant language. It's actually a covenant phrase. It's not a, it's not a contract faith, uh, uh, phrase. It's not a contract in which God says, I'll do my part, you do your part. It's covenant in which God says, Jesus says, I am going to take you home. For those of you that are married, doesn't that sound like a, like a wedding vow? Doesn't that sound like if Jesus is saying to us, I, Jesus, take you, my disciples, to be my bride, to have you and to hold you from this moment, from the moment you believed in me. In good times and in bad times, I will be there. When you have much and when you have little, I will be there. In sickness and in health, I will be there. When you want me around or you don't want me around, I will be there. I will love you, protect you, and make sure to take you home. That's a beautiful wedding. See, a disciple is a person that knows that when Jesus says that he's going to take us home, he will be with us all the way until he takes us home. You are never alone even when you feel lonely. Amen? Amen. 
And how is that an incentive for us to become disciple makers? Why wouldn't you want other people to believe that? Why wouldn't you want the people that don't know Jesus yet to get to know him and grow into this knowledge and believe that? Now, the third question we got to ask, which is the third incentive, is how does the presence of Jesus make a difference? And here I got to give you a brief summary of what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. Because not only we need to remember that Jesus promises a better future, and not only Jesus promises that he's going to be with us until he takes us home, but we cannot forget that the one that is promising this is nothing less than the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that little phrase, all authority changes everything. Because he paints this picture of a God that is not a wimpy God. Jesus is not this God that is limited. He's not this God that wants, he has good desires and plans for us, but he wishes he could accomplish those plans. That little phrase paints a picture of a Savior that is restricted by no one and by nothing. All authority has been given to me. All authority on earth and in the heavens. The entire universe must submit to him. That the one that promised a better future and the one that is going to be with us until he takes us home is the one that when he speaks, everything submits to him. A disciple is one that knows that because Jesus died and resurrected, everything must submit to him. How does that want us to, how does that, how is that an incentive for us to want to become a disciple more and more? Well, that reminds us of Matthew chapter 1, the baby that we saw. By the way, the baby that was called Emmanuel, God with us. Don't you find that significant? That the same God that was a baby in Matthew chapter 1 is the same God that we see in the last chapter of Matthew with the same term, God with us. That that little baby was not just baby Jesus. That that little baby was the mighty, almighty God in human form. See, that makes a difference because it reminds us that the one we saw tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness, and one is the same one that has the power to sustain us and defend us when we are tempted. See, that changes everything because it reminds us that if Satan submitted to him, is there anything that will not submit to him? See, that makes a difference because it reminds us that the ones that cause us to be salt and light in Matthew chapter 5, and he calls us to go and make disciples of all the nations, is the one that has all authority. Therefore, when we go into the world, there's no reason, church, no reason why we should be intimidated, no reason why we should be afraid of rejection or suffering or persecution, 
Because at the end of the day, the one that is sending us out is the one that is going with us and is the one that has all authority over everything. You know how much I struggle every time I see uh, believers being afraid of what is happening in this world. Like if, it's, like if our God is a wimpy God. The one going with us is the one that has all authority over everything on earth and in the universe. That makes a difference because he tells us that the one that is with us, that the one that is going to take us home, is the same one that had the power to cure leprosy, uh, heal a paralyzed servant, speak to a storm, and it comes down, deliver a demon-possessed man in Matthew chapter 8. It's the same God that we find in Matthew chapter 1 that resurrects a dead girl, he uh, heals a sick woman, he heals a blind and a mute, and in chapter 14 is the same man that turns, that, 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 that performs a crazy miracle of 5,000 lunchables. <laughs> it's the same God. So you tell me, is there a reason why we should be afraid of anything? When the God of the Bible that is going to take us home, that is with us, is the one that has the ultimate authority over everything. And at the end of the day, everything on earth and in the universe must submit to him. So the question is, why would this be an incentive for us to become disciple makers? Because when we go out to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are not going out trusting our charisma and effectiveness, and skills. Actually, God would never do that. He can take that risk. We are going out because the one that is sending us out is the almighty one. He's going to make it happen. Even when we mess up, the only thing we are, we are just instruments in his hands. Three incentives. Three incentives that, incentives that tell us what it means to be a disciple. And why is it that we should become disciple makers? Because we got to look at, what is, look at what is coming. Look at who is with us in the midst of all of this. And look at what he can do. So I need you to do me a favor and look at the person next to you and say, you must be a disciple maker. Go ahead. Now let's talk about the second point, the two requirements. And this is the part where I'm going to make everyone uncomfortable. Because I'm sure that up until this point, everyone will love point number one. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, but the reality is that we need much more than just point number one. We need two requirements. Two requirements that also explain what it means to be a disciple. And two requirements that demand that we apply them in order for us to make disciples. So here's the first requirement. We must remember that Christianity is personal, but not individualistic. The first requirement is that you must know that your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's not individualistic. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The first requirement is that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must know and remember that you need a community. Listen up. That there is no such a thing as a disciple of Jesus Christ that lives in isolation. 
That there's no such a Christian in the Bible. Outside the Bible, yeah, a bunch of them, but not in the Bible. In which a believer is not part of a community. And actually, in which a believer wants to make disciples in isolation that doesn't exist either. Christianity from beginning to end is a community project. How do I know that? Let's go back to verse 20, to the verses that came before. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And that word is in the plural. And surely I am with you, in the plural, always to the very end of the age. That's super interesting because in this part of the world, we read this verse and we never see the plural. Actually, in this part of the world, we read this verse and we read it as, a, as me. I have to go and make disciples. I have to do it by myself. But I want you to notice that Jesus is giving this commandment not to an individual, but to a group of people. He's giving this commandment not just to a person, but to a community of faith. This is the reason why we have to say that to be a disciple... To truly be a disciple, you must be part of a small community of faith. And the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is because if you have been a Christian for more, more than a month, you probably already heard something or read something in which he says that to be a disciple, it's all about you. You make disciples. You go by yourself. It's you, yourself, and you. But that's not, a, that's not a biblical concept. Actually, we cannot make that argument anywhere in the Bible. Let me, let me give you the most simple explanation on why I know this is true. Because if we are created in the image of God, and God is a relational being. Actually, notice that it says that when we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If, if the God that we are created in his image it's a triune God. It's a relational God. Don't you think that, therefore, if we are created in his image, we, by nature, must be relational beings? Let me put it blunt. You don't function well without people. You cannot be a disciple, a real disciple, unless you are surrounded by other Christians. Actually, let me press it a little more, just to make you uncomfortable. Did you notice that Jesus calls us to make disciples, and immediately he says to baptize them, meaning that there is no such a thing as a disciple that has not been baptized. But notice that baptism comes within the context of the community of faith. You know what's one pattern that we see in the Bible? People believe in Jesus, they get baptized, believe, repent, get baptized, and join a community of faith. That, there's no other pattern in the Bible. So the Bible tells us that to be disciples, you, you, you have to understand that you cannot live your spiritual life by yourself, that you are not called to be a disciple by yourself. And that you cannot make other disciples by yourself. It's a community project. 
It's a community effort. That's the first requirement. You must be, you must be surrounded by other Christians. The second requirement has to do with sacrifice. And the concept behind this, we find it in one word in verse 19. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Doesn't that little phrase remind you of something else that we find in Genesis chapter 12? That's a very, very similar commandment to what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In which he called them to go to be a blessing to the nations. And that's important because there's one thing that Abraham understood right at the beginning of his journey with God. That to follow God and to fulfill his purposes, he was going to have to leave what felt comfortable, what felt secure, what felt familiar. He would have to learn how to sacrifice for the sake of the nations, all kinds of people. You know, what's the requirement for you and me if we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ? And if we want to make disciples, we must be willing to sacrifice, to go. Because it's impossible to love other people unless we're willing to sacrifice. Isn't that what Jesus says when he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and, den cross and deny yourself? Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, he shares this poem that explains why is it that so many people in the Christian world, they like the idea of the future that Jesus offers. They like the idea of Jesus being with us. They like the idea of Jesus having the ultimate authority and everything. But why is it that they don't submit to Jesus and live for Jesus? Because there's a difference. There's a difference between liking Jesus and submitting to him. There's a difference between liking the idea of Jesus, but actually allowing Jesus to cross your will. There's a difference. So he shares this poem that I've shared here with the church before. It's called $3 Worth of God, Please. It's written by a man called Wilbert Reese, and this is what he says. This is a description of a person that thinks that he's a disciple, but he's not. Watch this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. There is no such a thing as a disciple that is not willing to submit everything to God. Listen up. There is no such a thing as a disciple that understands that Jesus has authority over everything, including everything about myself. 
You want to be a disciple of Jesus. You have to allow Jesus to cross your will. There is no other discipleship form. See, a true disciple is the one that is obsessed with the incentives that Jesus gives. That there is a better future. That he will be with us. And that he has all authority to make it happen, to take us home. But a disciple of Jesus Christ also understands that there are very, in this text, at least two requirements. That you need to be surrounded by other people to be a disciple and to make disciples. And that to be a true and genuine disciple, you must learn to sacrifice. It is only when you understand how worthy, how beautiful, and how amazing Jesus is that we get to do that. So the question then to finalize here is this. How do we embrace everything of the incentives without compromising the requirements? How do we embrace the whole, the whole thing? And the Bible is going to show us one fact, which is the one thing that allows us to embrace the incentives without compromising the requirements. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that it is this fact that proves that all the incentives are true and empowers you to live out the requirements. And this is the fact. Right at the beginning of the text, we see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary going to look for Jesus at the tomb. And an angel of the Lord shows up to them and says to them in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. And then in verse 6, he's not here. He has risen, just as he said. I want to invite you to consider that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees everything about our future. And I want to invite you to consider that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what proves that you can actually embrace the requirements. Let me prove it to you. It is because Jesus resurrected that we know that he's got the ultimate authority over everything. Why? Because he's got the ultimate authority even over death. Check this out. If Jesus was willing to surrender his life and had the power to bring it back again, what makes you think that he has no authority over everything else? It is the fact that Jesus chose to die and resurrected again the number one proof that says that he's got authority over heaven and earth. Two, it is because Jesus resurrected that we know that he's going to be with us until the end of the age. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that he will die and resurrect. Amen? And he did. Therefore, if that is true, everything else he says must be true. If Jesus says that he was going to stay with us until the end of the age, he's going to stay with us until the end of the age. The resurrection proves it. Actually, from that perspective, if God is asking from us that we live in community and that we surrender our will to him, 
There must be a good reason for that. Why? Because if Jesus resurrected, because if Jesus died and resurrected, as he said that he he would do, if God says that whatever he asked of us is good, then it must be true. See, you don't get to believe in what Jesus says unless you believe that Jesus died and resurrected. Number three, it is because Jesus resurrected that we know that our future looks much better than our present. You know how we know that? Because if Jesus said that our future will be much better than our present, just as much as he said that he would die and resurrect, and it happened, then it must be true. But there's something else, though. When Jesus resurrects, the Bible calls it the first fruits of what is yet to come. And I want you to imagine this for a second, just for a second. We know that the body of Jesus before the crucifixion and before the resurrection was different to the body after. And the reason why we know that is because after the resurrection, Jesus could just walk through doors. Now, the Bible does not say that that's how we're going to be. So don't get all excited. The Bible says that our bodies will be just bodies, glorifying bodies. You know what that means? That whatever you see in front of you, the future looks much better. Much, much better. That's also true of this creation. That whatever is coming is going to look much, much, much better. That not only our bodies will be fully glorified, completely made new. Can you imagine when everything we are stops decaying? What about the creation? What about relationships? He tells us that there will be a time in which the new earth and the new heaven, in the new earth and the new heavens, there will be no more sickness and no more war and no more division and disharmony, no more suffering, no more tears. That all of our longings will be fully satisfied. Whatever is coming is much better than what we have today. And we know that to be true because Jesus died and resurrected. See, we know that all the intensive that Jesus talks about must be true because Jesus died and resurrected. But how about if I tell you that because Jesus died and resurrected, we also find the power to be able to surrender our wills to him. How do I know that? Listen up, church. The fact that Jesus died and resurrected, the Bible tells us, that is the ultimate evidence that the Father accepted his sacrifice as enough. How about if I tell you that you see that in the text? How about if I tell you that the ultimate evidence in this text, that what Jesus did on our behalf because he died and resurrected was enough. And you find it in one little phrase that is so easy to ignore in verse 10. Look at what Jesus says to the Marys. When they're going to find the disciples in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me. And the interesting there is the word brothers. You know he's talking about the disciples there. He's talking about the ones that betrayed him when he loved them. He's talking about the ones that left him alone in times of agony. He's talking about the ones that he needed, the the, the ones that he, that when he needed company, they left him alone. 
Notice that he hasn't said, go look for those losers, betrayers, cowards, selfish, indifferent people. Notice what Jesus says. Go find my brothers. How is it that our Savior could call brothers a bunch of betrayers, cowards, selfish, and indifferent people? Because when Jesus went to the cross, not only he took the punishment they deserved, but when he resurrected, the Father says, this is enough, good enough. Therefore, these people are no longer what they were before. Now they're family, brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the family of Jesus. That's the fact. That because Jesus died and resurrected, everything else changes. That because Jesus died and resurrected, that guarantees a better future. It guarantees Jesus with us, his presence and his power. And it guarantees that we can change from within. It is possible to submit to him. Why? Because Jesus died and resurrected. Happy Easter in November. Let's pray. Our beautiful Savior, we know that what you have for us is much more beautiful, more perfect, more satisfying, more fulfilling than anything else we have here. Lord, we want to be disciples that make disciples. I pray, Lord, that we may be able to see and embrace that. I pray, Lord, that you help us see that you go with us until you take us home. I pray, Lord, that you help us see that not only you go with us, but that the one that is going with us is the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. And at the same time, with that in mind, Lord, we pray that you help us to become disciples that know how to live in community and are willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of your name. Could you please do that? And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And the church says? Now, this is one of those things in which it's so easy to say, so hard to embrace. So how about if I tell you that this is part of the reason why we participate in communion? Actually, I'm going to make the argument that part of the reason why we participate in communion is because we forget oftentimes what is yet to come. You know, thinking about this, I mean, uh, one of the, the American theologians that wrote, that has written the most about heaven is Jonathan Edwards. And it's super interesting that Jonathan Edwards writes so much about this because there's so many things that he could write about. And yet, most of his writings, many of his writings, are about heaven. And that reminded me of something that I, that I read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in, in which Paul calls Christians to long for his appearing, to desire his appearing, who, to love what, when Jesus returns. And I think that part of the reason why Paul says that is because when Jesus returns is when we get the new heaven and the new earth. And interesting enough, when we participate in communion, one of the things that we got to embrace and meditate on 
is what is yet to come. Did you know that? So Jesus talks about the cup and the bread, and then at the end he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until I come. See, this right here is a foretaste of what is yet to come. A time and a place in which we will get to sit with Jesus and enjoy his presence and get rid of all fear and anxiety and tears and sin. And we get to taste and see our Savior face to face. And we do this to remember that, looking forward to that. So today, instead of a time of uh, repentance, which we usually do, I want to invite you to imagine and to long for what is yet to come. So if you are a believer, these communion, these, these elements are for you. If you are not a believer, I, I would ask you to please not participate just yet until you surrender your life to Jesus. But for the rest of us, I just want to read what Revelation 21 says about our future. Because the more we are intoxicated by that, the less we're going to be intoxicated with this. The more we want that, the less satisfied we are with this world. The more we desire that, the more we could bear whatever we go through here. So this is what Revelation chapter 21 says. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. See, there is the image of trouble and struggle and pain. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So I'm going to give you a few seconds just to meditate on that. I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus, and the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me until I take you home. You may participate.
Now I'm going to ask you to please remove the other side of the cup. And the Bible says that after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me until I take you home. You may participate. There's a reason why we have been walking, or we walked for about a year and a half, two years with all the pauses we made through the Gospel of Matthew. Actually, this is how I started the series. I said that part of the reason why I wanted us to go through the Gospel of Matthew is because I wanted us to be obsessed with Jesus. Because the only way we surrender our wills to him is when we are obsessed with him. Because the only way we could deal with things here is when we are obsessed with him. Because the only way we get to die to our idols is when we are obsessed to it, with him. Because the only way we find peace and joy and satisfaction and security and significance is when we are obsessed with him. Because the bigger he is in our minds, the bigger he is in our hearts, the less everything else matters. And it is the reason to be obsessed with Jesus, the only reason why you and I get to experience revival. There is no revival without Jesus being in the center of everything. Don't you long that? I'm so tired of dealing with my sin. I'm so tired of seeing pain and the struggle and sometimes not being able to do anything. I'm so tired of seeing division in the church and the struggles in this world and people dying. See, the only way we can learn how to navigate this and wait until the best, until the future comes, is when we are obsessed with Jesus. So I'm going I'm to ask you to please stand and ask the Lord to allow us to experience revival. Amen.